1872, Lewis Carroll writes through the looking glass and what Alice saw there, uh, the source material for what is better known to us as Alice in Wonderland, thanks to a certain Mr. Walt Disney. And inside of this story, this uh, fable or whatever, is a poem. It's filled with all kinds of, I mean, you've seen the kids' movie before. Um, and uh, in, inside all of those things, different kind of creative stories about things going this way and that. And there's a poem in there, an analogy that he wrote on the uh, destructive habits of empire, specifically in this case, um, in, in his kind of moment, uh, the insatiable advancement of the Anglo-Saxon Empire, the British and the United States, uh, the current two world powers uh, that he describes as the walrus and the carpenter. Troubled by the existence of conditions that are common to humanity and the problems that come along with it, uh, insatiable greed and envy and lust and jealousy and lying and theft uh, and harassment and cruelty to animals and uh, unkind verbal epithets for low social status groups or ethnic cleansing or genocide, with all of these different problems, these are described as sand, right? Uh, And if, if we could only get rid of these, they wept like anything to see such quantities of sand, such... Uh, such ignoble things happening in the world. If this were only cleared away, they said it would be grand. If we could only have beaches without any sand, how wonderful those beaches would be because the sand gets everywhere anyways, right? As a result and as a, as a kind of advancement with this information, what should we do? Democracy must reign. Vice must be suppressed at all costs. Virtues extolled. Education, that's the key. Money, throw more money at the solution. That'll solve the things. And when they learn to think like us, ah, then, then the world will be right. All beaches must be cleared of sand. With these idealistic credentials, and because, like, obviously, who doesn't want more education in the world? Leading the way, they go on to something slightly more practical, inviting the oysters of the beach to go for a walk with them. And in the cartoon, their motives are clearly uh, delineated at the very, very beginning. But in the poem, it's a little less um, aggressive or a little, a little more coy, a little more coming across as innocent. Hey, we just want to go for a walk. Let's go talk about some things. Let's go talk about social advancement and general philosophical needs for our era. And except for the oldest and the wisest who senses the futility and the danger, the oysters, they come running. They stroll along until a comfortable spot is found, and then they say, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. It sounds like a sort of international G8 summit, sort of a a social agenda. Uh, Let's talk of many things. Let's talk of commerce, of transport, of sealing wax, which is like laws and and, uh, documentation, legal documentation of cabbages and kings. Let's talk of leadership. Let's talk of climate change and let's talk of animal uh, sort of genetic uh, uh, advancements in these kind of different areas. Uh, All of these things uh, can be very well talked about. But as we know, the pleasant social gathering has a sort of hidden agenda. The walrus and the carpenter simply cannot help themselves. At some point, we all get hungry. At some point, there's always a feed. But not on us the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. Oh, I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of largest size. I weep for you. I deeply sympathize while I sort you out from largest size. The rich, the powerful, and the privileged take advantage of those who acquiesce at the tip of a spear. The pattern of empire is well-worn. Oil, labor, natural resources, whatever's in season, it's all about supply. 
and demand for us. And so we're going to be talking about empire for a few weeks, a series called God and Gold. And it's not specifically anti-American. That's not, I'm not even anti-American myself. I'm pretty pro-American. That's where I grew up in. Um, uh, America is just simply the latest expression of empire, but it is a revelation. This series hopefully will be a revelation or a revealing or a look at or a don't, let's not take our eyes off of the pitfalls of empire. In the same way that Revelation, as a book in the Bible, was about empire, about Jews living uh, under the oppression of an empire, and Exodus was largely about unlearning all of the ill effects of being involved in empire. We have been struggling with empire for a while now, even as far back as a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The empire has always been on our minds. The history of America and empire have been mixed in history. Um, Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. I mean, that's not exactly empire language. Um, It's kind of the opposite. And the Statue of Liberty, a gift from a French foreigner to the U.S. who admired our anti-empire, or at least if didn't admire, was trying to call out the anti-empire sort of mentality. Could you build a great nation with all kinds of wealth and yet lose or dismiss some of the empire things? for us. Yet, our insatiable drive for more and cheaper is intoxicating. More oil, cheaper prices, better iPhones, cheaper prices, bigger trucks to haul more things that we just purchased with all this COVID money that we've been having or whatever. I'm so American, and I think some of you might be the same thing too, that we wander through stores, not really stores anymore. We wander through eBay and we go, I wonder if I could find this cheaper. And when we do find it cheaper than the original price that we found it for, we are inclined to buy it even when we don't need it. We look at it and we say, I may not even need this, but, and I might not even want this, but at that price, I just can't see myself passing this up. More and cheaper, more and cheaper. And every once in a while, we read an article in the New York Times or NPR or something like that, or we watch a documentary on Netflix or HBO or whatever on the sweatshops involved in getting me these Nikes at such a low, low price. And we show pictures, or they show pictures that really are emotion, emotive and emotional and draw us into the women and the children, all these people who are working these hours and uh, terrible pay and all of these things, or we hear about the coffee trade, and now we're going to only buy, you know, do this or whatever. And we look at it, and we feel emotionally there. We feel emotionally guilty about kind of where we come from, and we're almost like the walrus in that, sense, in, uh, in that scenario. I weep for you, said the walrus. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, I sort out those of largest size. Our relationship with empire is definitely complicated. I mean, we like living in relative comforts. Bluetooth headphones are like a huge step up. I don't know that I could live without them now. I don't need a Mercedes Benz, but I do find myself wanting one. And lucky for me, I know um, somebody who is the GM. <laughs> my, little, my little son just tried to come up on the stage and talk to me. Uh, uh, I do know somebody who runs a GM dealership, right? And so he's talking to me about all these things. And I look at him and, and I say, John, who really needs uh, carbon ceramic brakes for their vehicle. And he says, oh, you've never driven a car with ceramic carbon brakes, have you? And I say, no. And he's like, I think everyone should drive one of these with a little twinkle in his eye, obviously, in that way, as he sorts them out from largest size. Um, we're not exclusionary. Everybody can live like this. Well, okay, when we look at the logistics of it, we would say, well, not everybody can live like this, but all Americans, and then we think about it even more, and we're like, well, some Americans should be able to live like, okay, maybe not every American, but in this series is a little bit about how to live anti-empire while still running our air conditioner and buying our kids new soccer cleats, right? 
Um, there's a verse that's going to be a theme verse that's going to show up every single week. It comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, once again, is this um, curriculum for the Jewish people back in their time to kind of impart wisdom of the ages down to their kids. They didn't have schools like we would have schools, so it would be the responsible for every mom and dad to walk their kids through these different Proverbs and have them memorize this to kind of produce well-conditioned people to functioning in a, a beneficial society that is for everybody. And in the very first chapter, Proverbs 119, there's this verse, such are the paths of those who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. And yet, and then another version of it that Eugene Peterson writes in a way that I just love, when you grab all that you can get, that's what happens. The more you get, the less you are. The more that you get, the less you are. So we're talking about empire today. But let's start from the beginning, shall we, as we dive into this series together. Family dysfunction has always seemingly been a thing. If this week, because of school at home, uh, has made you a little bit nervous or concerned that an outsider's perspective, specifically teachers, are watching you through a Zoom conference with your kids and you're thinking, I don't know if they're going to like what they see. Um, Kylie and I wondered this week what teachers have already seen as a result of kids having their cameras on or what they've heard over in the screams and the whatever and how that is going to factor into parent-teacher conferences assuming that they do happen at some point and them going okay listen so parents sitting down and looking at the teacher through zoom and going listen I swear to you I do love my kid all right (laughs) it's it's just dot 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 and then the stories come out in that way Um, So family conflict has always been a thing. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we come upon the first family. We're given descriptions of Adam and Eve and and their two kids. The first son, Cain, is a farmer. Uh, He has a beef with his brother, Abel, who's a shepherd. Here's a couple of things that you know about farmers and shepherds. Farmers are settled right? Farmers find a spot, they sink down roots, they grow things, and it takes time for them to be there. So their property and their defining boundaries are important. If you've ever lived next to a farmer, have a family who's in the farming business, boundaries are a thing. They know their, listen, I have a house. I'm sure there's boundaries in my yard. I don't know where my boundary ends and my neighbors begins, right? She probably mows onto my property and I'm totally fine with that, right? Um, it's funny when you. It's funny when you when you talk with farmers. It, it, there's a very clear delineation of this. These are important things. Shepherds are sort of nomadic kind of people, creatures. Shepherds kind of go wherever they want to. They go wherever there's food and water for their flock. They wander. They're they're wanderers from place to place. There's no real strong sense of boundaries because all land is productive in a possible spot for them to feed and water the flock. And the grass will always grow back, and the water, the river will continue to flow whether I take some or not. It's always going to be there. So there's just two different mindsets going on in this sort of scenario. It wouldn't take long for the shepherd and his flock to cross onto the property of the farmer, which would then raise the question, whose land is this anyway? when you're dealing with these two people groups. And this has very, like, several different dimensions to this, right? Economic, political, religious, and social. The story of these first two sons is actually a story about progress, about innovation, and the inevitable movement uh, towards the forward-movingness of human civilization. We're talking about uh, reflecting, Genesis is reflecting uh, so many times um, what's happening on, on a macro level as humanity kind of evolves itself, and it reflects the transition occurring in the time and place in which the story was told, this nomadic orientation to a more agricultural one. Humanity was nomadic for a while, and then we moved towards this agricultural, a change that incurs strife and oftentimes 
uh, even a more aggressive strife and occasionally even murder. And that's what takes place in the story in Genesis. And as a result of the murder, the text says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Cain, the farmer, uh, went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden. There is a place, as we know, called Eden, a paradise, a state of being in which everything is in its right place, a realm where shalom reigns, where God's peace is in in authority there, and the favor and peace of God rests on everything, a place where everything is perfect. This is the idealistic notion of the idea of Eden, but Cain isn't there. He's east of there, and according to the book that you read in American Literature by John Steinbeck, we kind of all are east of Eden. That's kind of humanity as a whole, and he's not only east of there. He's building a city there. He's settling down east of where he was meant to be. And then several chapters later, the Bible says that the whole world had one language and a common speech. And then it says in quotations or in the verbiage that's going along there, as people moved eastward, these things begin to take place. As people moved eastward, Genesis 11, 1 and 2. It's almost as if the writer of Genesis is using this eastward metaphor as a way of describing that something has gone terribly wrong with humanity and that from the very beginning, humans are moving in the wrong direction. They're moving east of where they are supposed to be from. And some of you might be watching this online or here in the room today and say, hey, I'm from east. I'm from back east, right? And I would say, yeah, and you're a Steelers fan, so the analogy still holds. You're east of where you're supposed to be, right? This week, let's bring this in, let's fast forward several thousand years, right? This week in Portland, crowds formed for the umpteenth time to protest the police shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and all of the things that came before that as well, and police violence in general. A group of right-wing extremists came through the area, and one of them was shot and killed, and the video is immediately uploaded to YouTube. It goes viral, and so forth and so on. Vice News does an interview with the suspected gunman who admits to being the one who pulled the trigger, and in his interview says these words, I felt like I had no choice, right? A few hours later, after the advice interview goes live, he has a conversation with a friend asking her to set up a GoFundMe account for his two kids, 11 and 17, just in case something happens to him, quote unquote. A few hours later, as he probably expected, police show up at his house to arrest him. He engages in an exchange of gunfire and is shot and killed in his driveway. And I'm not talking about whether this is right or wrong or who's on the right side or wrong side here. I'm just talking about how this, what we see, This is not East of Eden theoretically. This is we are experiencing living East of Eden. Something isn't right about what we're doing as a humanity, right? The Germans have a word for this. It's going to be on the screen right here. I put the little things on the side so you know how to pronounce it. That's for me, really. (laughs) Or spraka. Or spraka. It's this idea of a proto-language or an earliest form of kind of how we communicated things. They called it the original language of the human family or this language of paradise that still echoes in the deepest recesses of our consciousness, telling us that things are out of whack, telling us that when we read this stuff in the paper and something grieves us, though we don't know the person, though we don't live in Portland, and though all of these things happen, we go, ugh, there's something not right about this. What is it? What is that voice crying out to us? What is it that causes our conscience to think, whether we're religious or not? This is not something that like only religious people read and get convicted about. This is where we all read this original sort of common bond binding humanity together where we look at the events of our day, the current events of our day, and go, something isn't right. It feels like we're all living east of Eden. We might not use those words, but that's the feeling and the sense that we get um, in this way. 
They speak to us when we scroll through our news feed on Twitter, Twitter, Twitter uh, or read news articles online. Something about how we relate to one another has been lost and something is not right with the world. But sometimes when we're living at the center of empire, when we're too busy benefiting from empire, that we're not actively critiquing it or using what agency we do have to live in an anti-empire sort of way, that voice becomes increasingly quiet. Sometimes it takes an incredible amount of focus to hear it. It's written in Genesis that when Cain killed Abel, God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Chapter 4, verse 10, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood that cries out. Blood that cries out because it's in the after effects of empire, which is a sense of again, an overreach, a gain that is not of my own. It's leveraging our power. It's, it's an abuse of this sort of thing. To understand this cry, the noise it makes across human history and its guidance on how to live anti-empire today, we've got to go back to the beginning of the story into the book of Exodus. To again, as we said earlier, unlearn, to begin to unlearn the ill effects of empire that we find ourselves living in. So again, this is not a critique of America. I'm not anti-American. This is a critique of empire. And I think the Bible has plenty to say about it. And when we come back next week, we'll dive into the book of Exodus to figure out where exactly that is. So for us this week, may we be the type of people who are not ignorant of the noise of the voice crying out. May we in our different activities, wherever it is that we find ourselves, through work or play or school or whatever, Look at it and say, where perhaps am I benefiting of ill-gotten gain and what is that sort of life doing to me? How is it? Is it true for me that when I reach for more than I deserve, it does something to me? What are the effects of that? Or if I'm a parent, how, how in the way that I'm re- raising my kids in an empire scenario, Um, Do we adjust perhaps our expectations or their expectations of things so that we don't fall into the trap that the Bible warns us so clearly about? And may we be the type of people who hear the voice of the oppressed and the beaten down and then live differently as a result of that. And I hope you'll join me. It's going to be a four-part series. We'll continue with part two next week and dive into Exodus. All right. That is going to do it for today. Thanks for putting up with a kid's video at the very beginning. I thought it was very interesting. Um, there is a connect card. If you're watching this online, uh, below the screen, if you're watching this from your desktop, if you scroll down just a little bit, a little connect card uh, piece there to let us know who's watching at home with you. Um, or if you're a first-time guest watching this, um, we are so thankful for people who spread the word about this unique creative community about trying to figure out what it means to live in the way of Jesus in the 21st century. Um, so let us know that you're watching so we know how much to donate. In the uh, month of September, we're donating money to Mirror Ministries, a local organization here in the Tri-Cities working to address sex trafficking issues and pull people from that industry and help them get uh, their uh, feet back under them and onto a new way of life. Um, And then also... Uh, If you are watching this from the app, you're going to have to get out of this and do it on there. But please let us know that you're here so we know who to celebrate with. There's also some follow-up questions on our our notes page. Or if you scroll down a little bit further, we've come up with a few questions, follow-up, to take this and not just sit on this. In fact, there's so much to take away from at least this early one, which is really just to get us in the right mindset for where we're going to go for the next three weeks. Um, And so if you will uh, meet with a friend or family member or whatever um, and dialogue through those different types of questions, that's really what it's designed for. 
explore in that way. And last but not least, next Sunday um, is going to be our first live event that we've done in six months. It's an outdoor worship night taking place on the 13th. That's next Sunday at 7 p.m. at night outside in front of the theater. Uh, Our band has been practicing, and we are excited. We're taking all of the necessary security precautions, all that kind of stuff. But we we are just so thrilled to have the opportunity to be able to do this. Um, So make sure you come out. We can have up to 200 people for that. Uh, If there's any additional, then, and we will be counting, we have to count, um, you can enjoy it from your car or DQ or something like that. So um, that'll be awesome. And I'm going to read for a benediction for you and then get you on your way. Here's what it says. Lord, keep us from following a faith that awaits peace in heaven. You are our peace and you are always with us. May your peace come and your will be done on earth as indeed it is in heaven. Amen. May that go with you this week. We'll see you back next week at 10 o'clock online for part two of God and Gold.